This is Young Lawyer Rising from the ABA Young Lawyers Division and Legal Talk Network. I'm your host, Montana Funk. Today we are joined by Tony Giatto. Tony is the inaugural director of the Kimball R. and Karen Gatsis Anderson Center for Advocacy and Professionalism, as well as the director of Trial Advocacy. Tony talks to us today about his time in the JAG Corps, as well as transitioning to a career as a professor at the Illinois College of Law, where he currently teaches. We are so excited to have Tony with us today. Tony, thank you so much for joining us today. I am super excited to have you here, and I look forward to this conversation. Thank you for having me. I'm super happy to be here. So let's just start off briefly, if you can kind of give our listeners a very brief oversight about what you're doing, what part of your career you're in, and then we're going to kind of jump into the nitty-gritty ins and outs of your career. Sure. Um, Right now, I'm a professor at the University of Illinois College of Law in Urbana-Champaign, And part of what I do here is I direct our trial advocacy program, and I also direct the Anderson Center for Professionalism and Advocacy. Awesome. So I know that, and we were talking about this before to our listeners, I'm going to give them a little bit of a a hint about what I'm about to say, and I'm sure you know. So you obviously had a career in the JAG Corps, and for our listeners, I'm Canadian, so I say big, weird, JAG weird. (laughs) So. So everyone bear with me, but I want to talk about that. Obviously, that's something I think uh, a lot of our listeners would be really interested to hear about. So just, you know, start me off with what inspired you to become a JAG officer. Sure. Um, So I joined the JAG Corps in the Air Force. So each military department has their own JAG Corps. So I did the Air Force JAG Corps, and I did it right out of law school. So I went to law school at Emory in Atlanta, Um, No military background whatsoever. Um, The military was not on my radar. It was not in my plans. But when I was at Emory, um, it was very expensive. Emory remains to be very expensive. Um, I'm a first-generation college graduate, so I did law school mostly through loans. And I just thought I would go to law school and go to a big law firm, maybe King & Spalding in Atlanta, and make a lot of money. And then probably late in my first year of law school, beginning of second year, I'm just like, you know what? I really want to do criminal law. Um, I took a class called criminal procedure and that kind of, you know, all the the lights started going off and everything made sense to me. But then I was going through the interview process and I learned very quickly that prosecutors and defense lawyers um, don't make a lot of money. And that was kind of before the time of loan forgiveness. So I was kind of going through the process of interviewing with a lot of DA's offices throughout the country, a lot of public defender's offices. And then the Air Force JAG Corps came and interviewed on campus. And um, I was impressed. They did a lot of criminal prosecution right away. The pay was pretty good. They had some loan forgiveness. They had bonuses and the opportunity to move around and and to serve. So I did the interview, didn't really think I had much of a chance. And then a few months later, I was studying for the bar and I got a call and they gave me an offer. That's awesome. I'm sure that was a surprise, a little, a little, uh, I guess, happy surprise in the midst of studying for the bar. <laughs> yes, yes. I was surprised. I, I did not think I'd be very competitive. So I was very you know, fortunate to get the offer. So when they came and did that interview process, what did they tell you as a candidate about what the exact look of the position would look like? Obviously, you'd mentioned prosecuting criminal cases, yeah. but what was their, I guess, overview of what the job actually would entail? It's been a while, and I know they do interviewing a little bit differently now, but I remember it was one of those 20-minute on-campus interviews. It was really quick. 
what they were really emphasizing was that military lawyers and JAGs do a lot of different things right away. So basically, you know, you go to your first assignment, wherever it would be, and you get exposed to multiple areas of law, you know, because at a base legal office is what we call it. Everybody prosecutes. But in the meantime, you may be doing torts, um, you know, if somebody slips and falls on base. Um, you may be doing labor law because there's a lot of civilian workers on base and they even have unions. And so you're representing the Air Force in labor disputes. You do legal assistance. So any military member and their family members and retirees can get wills done, powers of attorneys, just come in for general landlord tenant stuff. And so they really sold this idea that, look, you know, you get to be kind of a journalist and you get to be a journalist and kind of find your way a little bit while also getting a lot of courtroom experience. And that's within the first two years. And then they talked about after two years that you get to go do defense work. So you kind of get to do both sides, which I thought was really exciting because I was I was always one of the conflicted ones. I never really felt if I was a true prosecutor or a true defense lawyer. So I like the idea of being able to do both. And then also, too, they said, you know, down the road at your four or whatever, they would send you to go get your LLM and like environmental law or government contracts, um, just a lot of opportunities. And I, that's what I remember kind of being the hard sell. And what kind of got me excited because, you know, I was excited to do criminal work, but, you know, I always had that thought in my mind if, if that was what I would want to do long term. So I like the idea of being exposed to a bunch of different areas. Yeah, it sounds like it really was an opportunity to kind of dip your toes into different areas and kind of, you know, like you, like you were saying, right? Like you could do torts or exactly. you could do criminals. So that's really interesting. And what specifically were you actually doing? So when my first assignment was in Phoenix, Arizona. So, you know, when you come in, first you go to officer training school and then you go to JAG school. And then um, finally you go off to your first duty assignment, which was in Arizona. So when I started off, I was doing, I was our chief of legal assistance, which means I was the one kind of doing all the wills and powers of attorneys and doing legal advice. And then I will say, though, probably within my first two weeks, I had my first trial, which was um, a fairly complicated case. It was a, a sexual assault case right off the bat. So you're kind of doing the day-to-day -day legal assistance stuff and, and doing some torts as well. A lot of, we, the weirdest issue I had right away was one of our jets flew too low over a farm and it forced a cow to go into labor and the farmer or the rancher lost the calf because of the premature. So they brought a claim against the Air Force. So, um, I worked that issue. So yeah, so, you know, that was right away, but I will say within a year, most of what I was doing was criminal law. We called it military justice. But I think by, by the end of my first year, um, I was doing almost 100% criminal law. They really threw you right in, right into it. <laughs> they did. They did. And, and it was bad timing. Um, you know, I, I came in in 2006. Um, as part of my interview, they said that JAGs didn't really deploy that much, which was true in 2005. Um, in 2006, when um, things were really, really active in Iraq, a lot of JAGs deployed. So we were probably, we probably had about eight attorneys in our office. And I think within a six-month period, I want to say five to six of us deployed, only leaving like two or three. So it was really baptism by fire because I was one of the ones left behind, but um, all the work kind of flew down to those of us who were still there. I can't imagine having to kind of take on all of that when you're going from a certain amount of people to then being like, all right, they're going off. We're kind of the ones stuck, right? Exactly, exactly. So I want to I wanna take a quick break, but then I think that's a good segue to kind of jump into my next question. So let's take a quick break. And when we get back, we'll kind of move on.
it can be frustrating to wade through the malpractice insurance application process. But you know you need to protect your firm. Alps designed their application to be flexible, easy, and 100% online. Fill it out, review your quote, accept, and pay in as little as 10 minutes. Alps is the nation's largest direct writer of lawyers' malpractice insurance, and they are endorsed by more bar associations than any other carrier, so they understand law firms. They also know how valuable your time is, and that's why they make legal malpractice insurance easy. Visit alpsinsurance.com to learn more. That's A-L-P-S insurance.com. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple. So before the break, we were talking about the deployment and how you were kind of left behind to kind of hold down the fort, you know, for a better sense of the word, back where you were. So what were some of, you know, the pros and cons that you faced, or I guess some of the struggles, um, but also some of the pros that you faced that you want to tell our listeners just so that they kind of get all sides of it? Sure. I mean, the pros were, I got a lot of courtroom experience really young in really complicated cases. Um, so for a lot of people who want to do criminal work, you know, you may start off at a DA's office and you're going to start off doing traffic tickets, uh, misdemeanors, fairly low. I don't want to diminish it, but fairly low level stuff. And then eventually you're going to work your way up to doing more complicated felonies. I got to do fairly complicated felonies right away. And when I think back about my experience, I just can't think of any other way where I would have gotten that experience. And I think you grow close to the people that you're working with. I think there is kind of a, we're all in this together mentality. The negative is you kind of learn the hard way. <laughs> you know, there there were mistakes I made and, and cases I screwed up. And, you know, I just remember we had one of the first cases where we had, you know, a fairly important civilian witness. I didn't subpoena the witness and it turned out to be a big issue. But then I'm like, I don't even know how to do a subpoena, right? So you're just kind of, it was kind of difficult learning by fire. And also, too, the, the quality of life probably wasn't as high as, you know, I would have liked it. But when I look back on it now, it, it really formed the foundation for me. And I was I was young when I went to law school. I graduated when I was 24. And going back, I wasn't positive about what I wanted to do. And I think kind of being thrown into it, too, it kind of cemented it. It's like, no, criminal work and, and criminal law is where my heart is. Um, so that was a huge positive as well. As it kind of it made me grow up and gave me some direction, too. Well, we have a lot of similarities. I also graduated at the same age and I'm working actually criminal defense now at our public defender's office here. So I, I get what you're saying. You really yeah. don't get that experience at a lot of places unless you're in a place where, like you said, exactly. you're kind of getting thrown into these massive cases, right? Exactly. It's drinking from a fire hose, but it's fun in a way and fast paced. And so I get that. I totally yeah. get that. And then I also think, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe you served on a board. Is that correct? 
So I ended up spending 12 years total in the JAG Corps. You know, probably my first four years were, were relatively run-of-the-mill Air Force C-type stuff. Then I deployed to Afghanistan. And then after my deployment to Afghanistan, we headed to Washington, D.C., where I basically worked at the Air Force's military justice headquarters. Like, we were kind of the ones overseeing military justice policy. And, um, you know, it's kind of called, like, being air staff advisor to the judge advocate general. And after about two years, they sent me over to the Office of Secretary of Defense for a year. And within the Office of the Secretary of Defense, there's this thing called the Defense Legal Policy Board. And it's kind of a dormant board that doesn't really do anything. But then if the Secretary of Defense says, hey, we need somebody to look at this thing, they like activate the board and then the board comes alive. And so what had happened was during that time period, a group of Marines went into this town in Iraq, Haditha. And basically, they they slaughtered the whole village, including many innocent people. So they took them all to trial. Lots of different things happened, but basically, only one person was convicted, and he received no punishment at all, pursuant to a guilty plea. So there was a huge public outcry. New York Times did a lot of reporting on it, understandably so. It went to the Secretary of Defense, and he was kind of like, this was Panetta at the time um, during the Obama administration, was basically like something had to go wrong here, right? There's got to be something wrong with our military justice system for this to happen. So basically, the Secretary of Defense convened the board to look at how we dealt with situations like that in Iraq and Afghanistan. And then each service had to give a lawyer to kind of be this, one of the writers of the, of the board. So I was the Air Force um, representative. Um, I wasn't on the board, but I was the one who wrote the report in conjunction with the board. Okay. Well, first of all, I want to say thank you for all of your work. Uh, clearly, you, you did a lot. And I think, I mean, something that I'm sure our listeners are listening, hearing about, you know, being you being deployed and having these huge cases, it might be a little bit daunting to someone, right, who's listening yeah. and be like, okay, I really want to do this. But how, what do you always say to those listeners who know this is the direction they want to go, but maybe are a little bit apprehensive or scared about deployment or having a really big case? What what would you tell them? I just talked to a student about this very thing yesterday. Um, I never wanted to deploy. I mean, there, there's a lot of people who joined the JAG Corps because of that. You know, my my we had a baby at home. My wife was pregnant with number two when I got my deployment tasking to Afghanistan. I was not looking forward to it. And um, it was hard. Like, I'm not, I, I don't lie. And you know, if you had told me when I joined that I was going to have to do it, I probably would have been like, eh, no thanks. But what I tell people is it was, for me professionally, the best experience of my life. I mean, personally, very difficult. But professionally, it was an incredibly rewarding experience. The relationships I made there with other lawyers and interpreters, intel officers, it was just a great environment to work in. And I think, you know, there is a point in your career where you just kind of, I felt like you grow up, right? Where you're like, okay, I'm not a baby lawyer anymore. There's a seriousness of purpose. And so that's what I tell people now. It's like, look, when I look at my career, if I was on the other end of it, the beginning end, I'm like, oh, that's not where I want my career to go. And and I I don't think I can do it. But for me, I did it and it wasn't that bad. And Every experience I had made me grow as a human being. It made me grow as a lawyer. It made me grow as an advocate. Um, I like to think it made me grow as a leader. 
So in many ways, when I look back at my JAGCOR experience, I, fig- I feel like that's where I grew up and, and learned my seriousness of purpose. And that's what I tell you know young students and young lawyers who are thinking about it. It is hard. And there were times when I was in Afghanistan and you know living in a tent with nine other dudes and working seven days a week for six months and, and you know 14-hour days. And I was thinking about some of my law school friends who were at big law. And I'm like, man, they got it right, right? Like, you know, there, there were times I'm like, why am I here? And they're there. But I wouldn't trade that experience for anything. Um, I think it, change, it gives you an appreciation for service. It makes you appreciation for sacrifice. It gives you appreciation for just the importance of hard work. Um, there's a book by Angela Duckworth, who's a psychology, uh, psychology professor at Penn, called Grit, right? And, and basically her theory is, you know, what, what sets people apart isn't natural ability or intellect, it's grit, right? It's having a goal and being willing to do whatever it takes to, to meet that goal. And I feel that that's what my deployment and even kind of being thrown into trial work right away gave me. And so when I, I look at my career in two phases, there's pre-deployment and there's post-deployment. And I think, you know, I think where I landed at now as a professor at a very good law school who's directing a great program, I don't think I'd get to this point without serving and, and without my deployment and without my time at, in Washington, D.C. It sounds like it really shaped you. And, and thanks again. Yeah. And I just want to, you know, it's... It really is important. And yeah, I just, I think that hopefully our listeners who are considering it just realize how really important of a job it is. And although it might seem daunting and scary, it sounds like it really kind of made you the person you are today. So it's like that John Kennedy quote sometimes you do things just because they're hard. Um, There's something to be said for that. Yeah, absolutely. I want to take a quick break. And then when I come back, I kind of want to jump into your role as a professor and how you kind of made that journey. This episode is brought to you by the American Bar Association's Young Lawyers Division. Starting a new career in the law can feel overwhelming. The ABA YLD provides resources, CLE, and a network of peers from coast to coast to help you settle into your new legal career. Claim your Young Lawyer membership for just $75 at ambar.org join. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. So now that we talked about, you know, your opportunities and your career with the JAG Corps, I do want to kind of segue into how you made that change from, you know, that area to now being a professor and what kind of made you switch roles? Again, totally unexpected. So I spent, you know, I was in active duty Air Force Jack for 12 years. Um, usually when you're in for that long, you don't get out because the magical number in the military is 20 because when you get to 20 years, you get a retirement and, uh, it's a pretty nice retirement. So we were we were fairly committed to putting in the 20. I had a great assignment in Northern Italy, um, not too far out of Venice. It was a great assignment. We were super happy. I was doing well. And then, you know, we kind of received a, a last last minute move to Del Rio, Texas. And 
you know, we weren't super happy about the move geographically, but it was a better job. I was basically going to Texas to be in charge of my own legal office, and career-wise, it was great. And so we were sad to leave Italy early, but we got to Texas, and and it was a tough job, very rewarding job. But you know, at that point, I had my kids were getting older, and uh, my kids were in second grade and kindergarten, and they really, really struggled with the move. And um, so that was kind of on the back of my mind, and and you know. I had a good job that was required really long hours. Like, I'll be honest, like I was working 12 to 14 hour days. It was stressful. And I remember, you know, um, at that point I was the head lawyer at the base, which meant I was kind of responsible of overseeing our whole legal office. But you're kind of also at that point, the principal advisor to the base commander. And he and I had a strong disagreement one day about a case about, um, you know, it was a case that I thought should go to trial and he did not feel it should go to trial. And I just got back to my office and I was just exhausted. And and I was, you know, the kids were unhappy. I was exhausted. I wasn't around. And I just remember talking to my wife. I'm like, I just, I don't know if I can do this anymore. And she was like, well, what's your dream job? And I said, well, to be a law professor. And she kind of laughed because I never really talked about it. It's one of those things where like, it's in the back of your mind. But for me, I never really thought it was a possibility. Um, I have a very unusual background for a law professor. You know, I went to a good law school. I went to Emory. But if you look at most law professors, you know, it's top five law schools. You're looking at Harvard, Yale, Stanford, NYU. I didn't clerk. You know, I, I was a JAG. There are a few academics now who are former JAGs, but back then there was very few of us. Hadn't written a lot, right? So I just kind of sat in my office and I Googled, how do you become a law professor? <laughs> and there was this, this way and you like apply to this website, the American Association of Law Schools, and you like pay $500 and you submit this weird resume. And then any school who wants to interview you pulls from that. I'm like, well, this seems like a scam. Like this doesn't seem <laughs> real. And it just so happened like the, that the day I Googled that was the deadline. So I'm like, you know what? I'm I'm just going to take a chance, right? Um, you know, at some point you have to bet on yourself and, and take a chance. And I did it. And I submitted it. I didn't hear anything back. And then just one day, I I got an email from this professor at this law school in Raleigh, North Carolina, Campbell University School of Law. And the professor was like, hey, you know, we we'd love to interview you. You know, are you available for? I think back then they were doing Skype for an initial interview. And I'm like, sure. I did my initial interview. Then they invited me back for a callback. And all the while, I'm like, I, this, this can't be real, right? There, <laughs> there's no way they're going to hire me. And you know, now that I'm on the other end, I'm like, I don't know how they hired me. Um, <laughs> but I went there and I interviewed in person. They gave me an offer. And you know, I accepted it. And I, I, I'll never forget, I found out I was made, selected for promotion to lieutenant colonel on a Tuesday. And then I got the offer from Campbell on a Wednesday. Oh my gosh. Um, and I just remember, you know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday um, being a lot of deliberation on what we're going to do. But we just, you know, we're excited about the idea of moving to North Carolina. We were excited about me having a job where I was around more. I was excited for a new challenge. And, you know, the pay worked out. And and so we kind of, we took the leap. And, and looking back on it, I'm like, that was a pretty big jump. Um, it didn't <laughs> feel that way at the time. It just felt like the natural progression. And then I went to Campbell and I had a wonderful five years while at Campbell. Well, that's awesome. It really sounds like your jobs kind of surprised you both times, but... Yeah, and that's what I tell (laughs) students now. I'm like, it's not always a clear trajectory. You know, your first job isn't usually your last job and and doors open that you don't see opening. And sometimes it's just a matter of you having the nerve to put yourself out there and and see if, you know, the door is for you. Um, I've I've been very, very fortunate. Yeah, that's awesome. And 
I guess something that I'm curious about is how do you think your background helped shape you to be a good professor? That's a tough one. So when you're in a JAG, whether you're in the Air Force, Navy, Army's, Mar- Army, Marine, one thing they always talk to you about is you're an officer first, lawyer second. I'm not sure I always agreed with that. I think a lot of times I would be like, you're both, right? You should be a really good lawyer and you should be a really good officer. And and in fact, if you're doing both of them the right way, there should be no conflict with one another. Uh, But I think this idea of officership has kind of followed me into academia in that it's not so much officership. Like I, I actually think I'm probably a little bit too lenient with my students, but it's this idea I think of viewing yourselves as like a leader and a mentor, as opposed to this adversarial relationship, right? You know, like I try to be, you know, I, I try to have perspective and humility and understand what these students are going through, and mentor them and, and lead them, as opposed to only wanting to go right or only wanting to, you know. I love colleagues at every school I've been at, but some academics are more concerned with writing or or kind of doing outside work. So I think it's the being willing to lead and mentor students is a big thing. I think also, too, I think my background gives me perspective. You know, a very traditional background for a legal academic. And again, I'm not faulting this at all, but it is to kind of, you know, you go to law school, you do a clerkship. Maybe you go practice for one to two years, and then you go right into academia. I think having 12 years of practice experience, also a very unusual background experience, and to be honest with you, and I've been in a war, I think it gives you a perspective as to what matters and what doesn't matter. And so for me, you know, if if I'm teaching and I call on a student randomly and, and she's not prepared, I don't take it personally, right? Like, it's not about me at that point. And I think I'm, I'm you know, I, I can show them, you know, understanding and maybe talk to them offline. But I think it's understanding that, you know, what we're doing isn't the most important thing in the world and that these students have things going on outside the classroom, too, that maybe we need to talk about before I, you know, humiliate them in class. (laughs) Before you cold call them every second. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. No, I think that that's a really unique perspective that not everyone has. And I think that that's important, you know, you saying that you've you've clearly seen things that a lot of people are never going to see in their lifetime, right? But then, like you said, that probably makes you have an ability to engage with your students in a special way. So yeah. I, I think that that's really important. I'm sure that your students appreciate it. Um, and I think I want to make sure that too, that we touch on, you know, not only are there students that you are helping, but you have this unique perspective, like we said, where you can also help veterans who were in positions who maybe now they, you know, want to enter a legal career or maybe another career, right? It doesn't even need to be legal, but they are looking back at, you know, their journey and their experiences and their struggling. So what advice would you have for them who are like, hey, I'm, I also want to make this career change, but I don't know how to do it. I tell them that it's hard. It's hard to make the move from the military to civilian life. And it's okay that it's hard. I think I was in denial my first year or two when I made the change where I'm like, this is great. I don't have to (laughs) shave. I don't have to get my hair cut. People don't call me sir. I have a first name again. But when I look back on it, 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 it was hard. And, and I think, I think when I, especially, you know, I'm at Illinois now, when I think back about my time at Campbell, I think I struggled a lot with the military is really good at building a sense of community. And it's a community that's focused on a singular mission. And I think that's another thing I pulled from the military is being mission focused. Like, what are we actually doing here? And how are we all going to work together to achieve that mission? 
And you just don't see that a lot in academia, right? You know, the mission, obviously you want to, you want to educate students and prepare good, thoughtful lawyers. But, you know, at the same time, you have writing requirements, you have committee assignments, you have all of these different ways to get there. So I struggled a lot with, wait a minute, we're all not pulling together in the same way. And some of us are acting in a self-interested way. Like, you had that in the military, but it wasn't that bad. And so what I tell veterans now, I'm like, look, it's it's hard, right? You're not going to have the same sense of community. Um, not everybody's going to share the same experiences. You know, a good example for us is, you know, we moved every two years in the military, but most people moved every two years. So when you got to a new place, everybody welcomed you. Everybody was understanding that you were new and they were there to help you. When we got out and moved to North Carolina, we moved to this great neighborhood, but everybody had been there forever, right? So the kids had a hard time at school because they were new, whereas before, so I just tell them it's hard. It's hard and it's okay that you're going to struggle a little bit to be prepared to struggle. But I also tell them, I'm like, but you need to somewhat put the military away, right? You you know, sometimes I think we, and we have a bad habit where we want to make everything about our military service. I'm obviously talking in broad generalities, but <laughs> it's like, you got to meet everybody halfway, right? Like in the military, you use a ton of acronyms. Not everybody's going to know the acronyms. Not everybody's going to thank you for your service. Not everybody is going to know that you were a big deal, you know, and you just need to accept that, right? And and you just need to accept that, you know, it's it's meeting everybody halfway. And then from there, I just recommend just like in the military, find a mentor, right? Find, and it doesn't have to be somebody who served in the military, just find somebody who you look up to and, and get that mentorship from them. Um, but it is hard. And, and I tell them, it's like, you know, be prepared to get upset sometimes. Like I had a after I got out of the military, my first boss, he could not get my service right. I mean, he always said I was in the Army and I was in the Air Force, right? That's a little thing, but it really started to wear on me. And so it's one of those things where you just talk to them and be like, you know, just you got to be patient. You got to be patient. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there are things, like I said earlier, right? You've experienced stuff that people are never going to experience. But I think you made a good point saying find a mentor. And I think that this is important because I think you're a mentor. It sounds, you know, I mean, you're a mentor. I try to be. You are. You are a big deal and you are a mentor. And I think that our listeners are going to listen to this and I think hopefully take some comfort in knowing that there's someone out there like you who's been through this experience, this very unique experience. So kind of a segue into my last question and my easiest one, but I also think that you kind of kind of cast it yourself. So you're now a podcast host too, but (laughs) (laughs) well, you can join whenever you want, but just tell our listeners, for those who are looking for a mentor, you know, someone to look up to, someone to reach out to, where are they able to find you if they want to reach out to you to get some more advice? Sure. And please do. Um, so the best way is probably over email. My email is aguiado at illinois.edu. That's not easy to spell. So that's A-G-H-I-O-T-T-O at illinois.edu. And to be honest with you, if you just Google Tony Guiado, Illinois, my faculty profile comes up <laughs> and it has it. Um, I am on Twitter or, or X, whatever they're calling it now, um, unfortunately. So I think my handle there is at Guiado Tony, I think. Um, <laughs> but but email works great. So like I said, if you literally just Google Tony Guiado, Illinois, um, you get my email address. And, um, you know, please reach out and more than happy to set up a Zoom or, or a phone call to talk you through this because um, to me, that's the best part of the job. Well, thank you so much for joining. I appreciate it. And I do want to say thank you for your service. So thank you so much for being on here today. And I know our listeners are going to love this episode. Great. And thank you for what you do for young lawyers. It's super important. Thanks. 
Listeners, that is our show. As always, I want to thank you for joining us and tuning in. If you like what you heard, well, you know what to do. Recommend us to a friend. You know where you can find us. Until next time, I'm your host, Montana Funk, and you've been listening to Young Lawyer Rising, brought to you by the ABA Young Lawyers Division and the audio professionals at Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.